This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today in the podcast, we have a very likely presidential candidate, Eric Swalwell. Now, people in California know him as a longtime congressman. People who watch cable television know him because he's on every other day. He is a member of the House Intelligence Committee, the House Judiciary Committee. He's in the middle of all kinds of things involving the investigation of the president and collusion. But we're going to talk to him about what kind of presidential candidate he would be if he's going to run. And it kind of sounds like he is. Eric Swalwell next on It's All Political. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Congressman Eric Swalwell, welcome to It's All Political. Welcome to San Francisco from our mutual home in the lovely East Bay. Of yeah, thanks, Joe, for having me. Okay. All right, let's get, let's get to this first. You've been to Iowa 16 times since the beginning of 2017. Uh, right after we record this, you're flying out to uh, New Hampshire. This weekend is the start of the prestigious Politics and Eggs breakfast. And I can ask you this question this way because we've known each other for yeah. a while. Dude, why are you running for president? Come on, <laughs> give it up. Yeah, well, we're getting pretty close. We're pretty uh, close. Yeah, you know, and I want to take this process of deciding seriously. Uh, and I've asked myself three questions. Can I make a difference? Do I think I can win? And can I find childcare? <laughs> you know, <laughs> to do the first two. Um, and, and so I, I do think uh, that the country, uh, you know, needs a leader who would go bold, uh, on the solutions we'd offer, uh, be big in the way that we would take on the issues uh, and do good uh, in the way that we would govern. So go big, be bold, do good. Uh, that's so so needed uh, on healthcare, environment, energy. The path to win. It is a steep mountain. And yeah. the other climbers uh, you know, at the base right now are some of the best and talented. Uh, and that, of course, is intimidating. But yeah. uh, I see a path to the top. I know who it would take to get me there. And uh, you know, I, I think we could do it. And then the child care issue, two kids under two. My wife just came off maternity leave. She's got a great job, you know, over in Half Moon Bay. So we're trying to, you know, just sort out, you know, how the hell do you do something like this uh, and still see your kids uh, and, you know, make sure that, you know, her dreams and aspirations aren't deferred for too long. That, that was the question I was going to ask you because that's a question of female candidates. Uh, it's a sexist question. You know, why, why would you run for president with two young kids? Yeah. But this is something you're actually considering and this is a major consideration for you. Um, so what, what other than, you know, you're, you, you'll be one of the youngest people running, what other than age can help make you different than the other candidates? Where do you differentiate from that? There's, you know, could be 15 people yeah. running. 
How do you, where is the Eric Swalwell lane here? Yeah, age is not a reason uh, to run. And it's, it's not a qualification uh, for running. So I would say... Or a disqualification, uh, yeah, or, Senator or a disqualification. Sanders would tell us. Yes. That's right. Uh, you know, maybe uh, there will be a birther certificate with Donald Trump asking <laughs> if I'm even old enough. Who knows? Um, but I see myself as a candidate who's connected uh, to everyday folks uh, in that I was the first in my family to go to college, son of a cop, two parents who are Republicans... I've got student loan debt just under $100,000 and two kids under two. So I I get the grit and the struggle and the hustle that everyday Americans go through because I lived it and we're still going through it today. So a connected candidate. Uh, Generationally, uh, I I do think believing that, you know, going big and being bold uh, has uh, defined this uh, next generation of Americans in the way that they solve problems in the private sector, but they have lost faith that government would be able to do anything on energy healthcare, gun violence. So trying to be a generational bridge. That's where it's not your age, but it's your mindset. Do you have the mindset of that generation that could be a bridge you know, to solve problems in Washington? And then, of course, geographically, coming from a, a place here in the Bay Area where I, where I see you know, the investments uh, in innovation uh, to bring down the costs of healthcare and energy, what if Washington uh, could be so innovative in having, again, that perspective? And then finally, yeah, I'm, I'm 38 years old. Uh, but when I look at the field, you know, I put myself, uh, you know, near the top when it comes to uh, foreign policy and national security experience. I've been on the Intelligence Committee. I know who our enemies are uh, on the outside uh, and have stood against <coughs> them as they've attacked us. Uh, but I also know uh, what the threats are on the inside as a president has, you know, taken a wrecking ball to the rule of law. And so I think the, the country uh, has been assured over the last, you know, two years in the thick of this uh, Russia investigation uh, that I, I've stood firmly for the rule of law, uh, and I've punched back uh, when our com- democracy has been on the ropes. So uh, this uh, this run would be, to use uh, the words of our Governor Newsom, an audacious goal <laughs> uh, for someone who is 38, as you say, with with limited name recognition and 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 not the deep fundraising uh, portfolio of uh, of other candidates in there. Why why do it now? I just uh, yesterday I was speaking to your uh, colleague and, and I believe friend Rokana, um, and uh, and he said uh, I said who's endorsing Bernie Sanders? I said well why not Swalwell or uh, Kamala Harris your your fellow Californians? And he said well R- Eric is at the beginning of a very bright career and he has a lot of time. Why why now? Well I actually think it's it's the impatience of, of believing uh, you know we can't wait uh, any longer to have boldness. To bring universal coverage in healthcare, but also a candidate who believes that the best thing we do as Americans is big things and seek cures in our lifetime. On gun violence is a, a former Alameda County prosecutor who prosecuted homicide cases with assault weapons, believing that yes, we need background checks, but the boldness uh, to ban and buy back all 15 million assault weapons out there. So, you know, I, I think that imp- that impatience uh, that you know I, I could bring, you know, generationally because. I'm connected to people who just can't wait uh, for action on that. That's uh, what you know spurs me to want to go now. Let's uh, talk about some of the issues where you differentiate. Where are you on one of the great dividing questions of this primary is going to be uh, universal health care. You mentioned yeah. universal health care. What about Medicare for all? How do you where are you, where are you at on that? Yeah, so I, I would like to have you know government coverage with a large public pool that would drive down uh, the costs and pressure on private insurance uh, as well. But I, I don't want us to get so deep into this debate of you know Medicare for all versus free market as you know the president would like us to have. 
that we miss uh, what we can do best, which would be you know, a trillion dollar, 10 year uh, cures in our lifetime program. Uh, so instead of the tax cuts that went, you know, 83% of the benefits went to 1% of Americans, I'd rather put a trillion dollars over 10 years in genomics so that we know at birth, you know, what we're predisposed to. We know what we should do better in our own personal behavior, and we know uh, what targeted therapies could make us uh, healthier, uh, that we could use data sharing as well to find out what ails us and put a generation of scientists to work. So through an investment in cures, we would bring down cost, we would extend the quality of life, and also it'd be a jobs program. And so I, I don't want us to miss you know, the innovation side right. of healthcare. Well, that seems like a long-term goal. What about in the more short, short-term with, the, with healthcare policy? Where would you, like, are you in favor of Medicare for all? Or would you like sort of, okay, that's an aspirational goal, but maybe we'll go for a public well, no, I, option beforehand. No, I, I, support, I support Medicare for all, but I don't think we can get rid of a private insurance either. Okay. I think the, the having such a large pool uh, of people you know, in Medicare in a government healthcare uh, program would put competition on the private insurers and everyone uh, would benefit, whether you're in a large pool, uh, lower premium government plan or a private plan that now has competition. Um, but let me just say this. I, I've seen too many places uh, in the country, and I saw this just this past weekend in Iowa. You go to a, you know, a convenience store to get gas, and there's a hollowed out candy jar with a, a picture of someone in the community who has cancer or who's been in a car accident, mm-hmm. and their health care plan is the charity of the next person checking out at the register mm-hmm. and putting their change in that jar. And that can't be the health care plan uh, in America. And the president, I think, missed the point when he came to the State of the Union and pointed out a 10-year-old girl who has brain cancer and she had raised $40,000 through a GoFundMe effort. And yes, we should all stand and applaud her efforts. But again, he's missing the point that her health care plan is the charity of others. She should right. have health insurance, and it shouldn't wipe out her family uh, because she has cancer. What about, <clears throat> you talked about that you still have close to $100,000 in student loans, which is, uh, for context, uh, the average wealth of the member of Congress is well over a million dollars. So you're, you're an outlier there in Congress. What about uh, another thing that's being discussed is free college tuition, whether it be yeah. two years. Uh, here in California, we offer two years of community college. Where, where are you at on the on the free college tuition, and yeah. how? And if so, where would you how would you pay for it? And that's why I think having a connected candidate, you know, to everyday experiences matters. And in the White House, you know, could reduce the overall debt young people carry. So there's two issues here. There's people who are going to college, and what's it going to cost them? And then people like me who are already out and you know writing $500 checks every month that is not going to saving for a down payment, not going to starting you know, a family, not going to uh, taking a good idea and turning it into a business. So there's a cost with that money just servicing debt. Mm-hmm. So for college tuition to make sure that when my kids go to school, it's going to be affordable, I think the biggest thing we can do uh, is take what we know about colleges, whether they're graduating students within four years, whether they're placing them within jobs within six months, whether they're keeping tuition uh, high or low year after year, use those performance indicators and leverage our ability to back student loans. We've never done that before. So mm-hmm. we treat, you know, Cal State, East Bay in my district, uh, you know, Berkeley, Stanford, University of Phoenix, we treat them all the same. So, but we don't look at how well they're doing on those metrics. So if we said the good actors are most eligible for federally backed aid and the bad actors are least eligible, I think that would have them bring in their costs 
and have curriculum that can put these kids into a job. So that's, that's so it'll be, it'll be pressure to on the colleges, sort of market pressure or government and market pressure to bring down their costs. Yes, ninety percent okay. of the student loans are federally backed, so uh, there'd be a big incentive and also an incentive for states to contribute more to the public universities. Uh, so that's the biggest thing I think we can do to bring down costs. But I also would offer a college bargain, uh, which is this, that if you work through college, through work study, and if you come out and volunteer uh, and do service hours for a community in need, you would get a debt-free education. It's not a giveaway. Uh, it's like, not, a, is it, would, how would that be different <clears throat> like a Teach from a, for America? How would that be? Would that be the same thing? Well, or? this would be not just teaching, but, you know, uh, volunteer service hours, whether it's, you know, providing, uh, you know, care, uh, whether it's, you know, working as a volunteer firefighter, uh, you know, or working at a nonprofit in a community. But I would like to have a, a service uh, debt relief program in America because what I've, what I've found, I just want to take a step back. When I talk to my senior colleagues in Congress, there's, there's two disconnects on this issue that prevent us from getting action. One, most of them went to college at a time when student loan debt uh, was very low. There wasn't any. There, there, not yeah, many there a couple, going, couple grand. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Not many people were going to college, right. uh, and the states contributed a lot more mm-hmm. uh, than they did uh, than they do today. Two, as you pointed out, overwhelming majority of members of Congress who get to Congress are already millionaires. So if they have kids who've gone to college in the last 10, 15 years, they probably didn't take on debt. So they have this just lack of perspective. And they do say to me, like, what the hell are you guys doing? You guys are racking up all this debt. I don't understand it. It's because it's an apples and oranges experience. But yes. I think I can <clears throat> get them behind a work-study, serve-a-community program uh, as a path for uh, debt-free education. They, they would believe that, okay, you're working for something. That's very American. Uh, it's not just a giveaway. Right. Uh, that we could do. Now, let's look at the student debt that we have. 40 million young people, $1.3 trillion in growing student debt. I think there's three things we could do. One, have the student interest at zero. So instead of the government making over $100 million a year on student loan interest, keep that money in the pockets of the students. Two, allow the students to refinance their student loan debt Mm -hmm. as they could with a mortgage or a commercial loan. And three, allow employers to contribute tax-free to their employees' student loan debt and have it treated as tax-free on the student side. I think those three reforms uh, would make the biggest uh, difference uh, in the amount of so debt young people carry. That sounds like a, like a more of a practical middle road goal than, than a... Well, it's uh, more than anything we've yeah, seen. Yeah, than, than something, yeah. than a free college, which is a, would definitely be a harder yeah. lift, uh, certainly in the, uh, no matter what the Congress looks like next time. Um, so if you run, you are also sitting congressman right now, but if you decide to run for president, cough, cough, um, you... Uh, <laughs> If you would, are you, would you give up your seat in Congress? Yes. You would give it up? Yes. Really? And I think That's you have to. I, I, now, why I th- is that? Well, I, I think you have, if you're you know, seeking such a, a big job that would affect so many mm. people, uh, I think you have to assure you know, uh, the people you're asking to vote for you that you're not hedging and that you yeah. don't have you know, a lifeboat uh, waiting for you. Burn the boats. Burn the boats, as Cortez <laughs> did. You know, they, they stormed the land, and he had them burn the ships behind them so that there was no looking back. And I... And I would, want to, I would want people to know I'm putting my all into this, and I don't have a life insurance policy. So come— That's such you know, a non-politician thing to do. I think I, I, I'm surprised at that, frankly. Well, but I also—I've told our staff as we plan uh, and look at you know, how we could do this that the one thing I don't want on an agenda is what happens if I lose? Like, what do I do if I lose? Because, you know, the truth is I was the first in my family to go to college. That's mm-hmm. all my dad wanted me to do. Like, I'm going to be fine. Like, yeah. I'm playing with the house's money as far as, like, you know, making my parents proud. So I don't, you know, we're not trying to sell a book or, 
you know, get a leadership position anywhere else. Like if I'm going to run, it's going to be because I think we can win and most importantly, uh, make a difference. The, uh, let, you were involved in, in so many, oh, one other question I wanted to ask you, but that something's recently come up is, um, but two of the people running for um, president, uh, Kamala Harris and uh, Elizabeth Warren, say they're for reparations for African Americans, and, and that it can take different forms. Is this something you thought about, or would you do you think that that's something that, oh, that should happen? You know, I, I've I worked. Uh, I went to law school in Baltimore and mm-hmm. worked as a prosecutor uh, in Alameda County, uh, and, and I, I do believe that you know one there's still uh, implied bias that exists in, in our mm-hmm. country, Absolutely. whether it's in the criminal justice system, whether it's just in the workplace where. Uh, when you look at you know how hiring uh, occurs, oftentimes it's through word of mouth, and uh, you know if you you know have a just white people in the boardroom uh, and they're hiring others, they may not be conscious of it, but uh, they're not you know bringing in candidates uh, people right. of color. You hire who you know from your circle. Yeah, that's right. So I, I think um, you know the root of that in our country, uh, I think, is through slavery, and and I do think that we have to do uh, you know through whether it's investments in community, whether it's through investments in education, uh, a way to make sure uh, that opportunity is equal. All right, you, you're involved in so many other things. Uh, and, and, and of course, we're all waiting um, for the Mueller report. It, by the time this is posted, it may be already up. Who knows? Um, you were both on the Intelligence Committee and on the Judi- House, uh, Judiciary Committee, so you're going to be uh, seeing this. Um, you, what form do you think this report is going to take? When we say a report, what what do you anticipate this is going to look like? I mean, uh, the, the the precedent for this is that, in, and, and knowing Mueller's history, it'd be something pretty lean. It's not going to be like a star report, which wasn't through the yeah. Justice Department. What do you think it's going to look like? Well, I, I hope it's not all blacked out, right? <laughs> the, 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 the American people should see it. And and I carry myself with the confidence that I can say that we will see it because we were given uh, the majority, and people wanted a balance of power on these abuses of power, and that includes uh, not shielding the president from, you know, accountability. So yeah. we're going to see the report. It's just a matter of time. What I would like to know is, one, uh, exactly how many people uh, in America uh, worked with the Russians uh, as they were attacking our democracy. Uh, two, uh, I would like to know, uh, you know, to the extent that he's responsible for doing this, you know, what vulnerabilities existed in our government that allowed this to happen so that we uh, don't see it happen again in 2020. And then three, were, you know, in their investigation, were they impeded because people lied, tampered with witnesses, obstructed justice? And that's important because in America, you're not rewarded for burying the evidence and preventing investigators from finding it. If we find you with, you know, a shovel in your hand and dirt on your shoes, we conclude that you're hiding something pretty important mm-hmm. and that you only sought to hide it because if it was found, it would incriminate you. So we do have obstruction of justice you know, charges. That, that's the reason. It's not the president calls it a process crime. No, it's a crime that says it's a consciousness of guilt. You went to these lengths to stop justice because you were, you know, you had a, a guilty conscience about what we would find. And so if, the, if Mueller says, I wanted to find A, B, and C, but... I had, you know, D, E, whatever obstructors, then we can conclude that they were obstructing because, you know, they were hiding something. And so that would be helpful for us, too. What, uh, of course, many people uh, want to talk about impeachment. What is it going to take for you? What are you going to be looking at in this thing that will trigger impeachment to to, to Mm -hmm. take it to the next level? So Donald Trump is being impeached. It's just a matter if it's at the ballot box 
or in Congress, but he is not going to be president on January 20, 2021. I am I'm certain of that, uh, and I'm optimistic about that because of what happened in the midterms. Now we have a job to do in Congress, uh, and that is you know, to give him a fair investigation. There's certain certainly reason to look based on his conduct, uh, but also not to do Donald Trump justice, because if we did Donald Trump justice, he'd be impeached already if we just jumped to conclusions and didn't follow the evidence. And so we can't, you know, be offended that he's attacking the rule of law and then not follow the rule of law ourselves as we undergo uh, this investigation. So as we collect evidence right now, I think the most important thing we can do is make sure every investigation, we can tell the American people why we're doing this, what's at stake, how it affects them. And I'll, I'll contrast, you know, for example, the, the payoffs to silence the women where he probably didn't follow campaign finance laws. Yes, that's probably a crime. Yes, there may be an indictment waiting for him, you know, when he leaves the presidency. No, I don't think the American people think that that should be the most important thing we're focused on. But if that behavior tells us something larger about just the way he operates in a shadowy way with his taxes, with, you know, dealings with financial uh, financial dealings with other governments or working with uh, countries who are adversaries in our elections. And yes, we should use that as kind of prior acts uh, evidence uh, to follow uh, other investigative leads. So let's follow the evidence, seek you know the buy-in of the American people because they know what's at stake, seek the buy-in of Republicans if we can, uh, and then you know see where it takes us. But I, I don't you know lead with impeachment, uh, but we're not going to look the other way either. As you said, one of the most important things about that is to build public support in this, because you have to build that in the House, and most important, the Senate, where where Democrats don't have a majority. How do you you explain what what may be something very complex? And you've you've done a very good job on this online, on your your, uh, sites, sort of trying to connect the dots. How do you how do you put that on a bumper sticker? Yeah, <laughs> to tell to tell yeah. the the vast majority of American people, thirty thirty five percent of whom you know, it would take the president shooting someone in the middle of Fifth, yeah. Fifth Avenue to to uh, turn their opinion on him. How do you how do you condense that mm-hmm. into a, a a narrative that can sell right. and impeach the president? Right. It's almost like we'll know it when we see it, right? Yes, like, it's like porn. Yeah, yes. we'll know it when uh, we I see said it. that. Otter Stewart. Yes, yes, uh, I'll, I'll name the Supreme Court. Justice. Very, very um, nice. So. Yeah, I, I, so I my challenge is, yes, there's going to be red lines that we all have. And if he crosses them, our job is to hold him accountable. And that includes, you know, possibly impeachment. Balance that against the risk of, one, the Senate not removing him, or two, Trump becoming a martyr out of this and even stronger and guaranteeing his re-election. Now, I try and put the politics aside, like what it means if we impeach him, because again, you wanna just follow the rule of law, you don't wanna think about politically whether it helps him or hurts him. So I'm of the mindset of like, if we see just clear bright line violations on things that matter to the American people, um, where you know it when you see it, you can't look the other way. Because you're setting a precedent for future presidents. You're setting a precedent for future White House counsel who will look back at how we you know, deemed his behavior, whether we thought it was impeachable or not, and they'll advise future presidents on that. And so you know, I, I think you know, if, if we do see bright lines, we, we gotta move. But we've seen a lot of evidence that he's crossed these bright lines, but I, I don't wanna 
jump to conclusions because we've never had the position that we're in now, which is we can actually subpoena and call witnesses. It's never going to move as fast as any of us want it to. But that's the beauty of democracy is that, you know, we, we do it uh, in a methodical, meticulous way so that if we do get to that extraordinary result, people can, can have confidence uh, that it was not a rush to judgment. And uh, I think right around when this uh, is posted, uh, Michael Cohen will be coming before your committee. Next week. What, yeah. what do you want to know from Michael Cohen? And, and what will the significant? It, it seems like we've already heard a lot from Michael Cohen. What more do we need to hear from him in open testimony? And what are you looking, what do you want to hear from him? And what should the American people hear from him? Yeah, it's kind of like that, uh, you know, the movie The Fugitive. You remember uh, when he when he says to Harrison Ford um, and the cop says to Harrison Ford uh, or he says to the cop, if you remember, you know, the, the, the FBI, the marshals come in and the right. locals come in and there's a dispute. And uh, the, the U.S. marshal says when he, finds him in a contradiction. You want to clean up your bullshit story now? You know, that's kind of what I think of as like, welcome, Mr. Cohen. Uh, and I, I'm very grateful that he's coming clean. Right. But like, we've got a, a big bullshit story that we were told. Right. And you need to clean it up. Yeah. And so that it's a come clean opportunity for him. And again, I, I credit him for coming forward. It sounds like he's had threats to his family. Yes. Um, he didn't have to come forward. He's probably going to avoid some jail time, you know, because of his cooperation. Uh, but, you know, he, we sat with him for about eight uh, to 10 hours uh, and he's pled guilty to, you know, what he told us or what he didn't. And we have a lot of, you know, questions about, you know, just what he saw inside, at, you know, the Trump Tower. Uh, the, so what he saw in the personal, political and professional life of Donald Trump and what he knew about, you know, the, the candidate's efforts to put a Trump Tower in Moscow and whether the candidate was aware of Russia's efforts to try and help him, and whether the candidate was aware of the Trump Tower uh, meeting. So, there's, yeah, there's a lot to learn. Can we trust what he's saying? I mean, because, you know, it's, the, I mean, talk about a, uh, an impeachable witness. I mean, you know, or, you know, because he has told a bullshit story. I mean, can yeah. we, uh, how, how, how do we know this? This isn't going to be bullshit. And so, by the way, this is a congratulations to both of us for a record number of bullshit yeah, on, the, yeah. on the podcast. Yes, yes. <laughs> this is a bullshit you. podcast. This is a, you're not the first oh. person to say that. Thank you. So, I've, d I've worked with a lot of witnesses like this before. Um, and, you know, I tell people that in many cases, this isn't much different than prosecuting, you know, a gang case and having a witness who's broken away from the gang and lied to investigators initially but now wants to come around mm -hmm. and tell the truth. I, I've worked with a lot of witnesses. Yeah, you've done this uh, like as a prosecutor. And, and you can't, because they lied initially, you have to corroborate uh, even more so, uh, you know, what they tell you from outside uh, sources. So, you know, that's what we will, you know, seek to do. But also, it can be very powerful testimony when you have someone who lied and now is coming around and telling the truth because, uh, one, it, it gives you a window that you didn't have, but two... If you believe that others are currently lying, it really allows you to understand what their motivations to lie are. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I always found that was helpful, especially for a jury, and in this case, the jury of public opinion. I think, you know, they'll look at all these other people around the president who, you know, it looks like they've been lying uh, or, you know, have been deceitful, and now they're going to have that, ah, I get it. That's why they're going to such great lengths to protect this guy. And that's part of building that public case. Right. Yeah. All right. 
Carson Swalwell, thank you so much. So we're, we're expecting a decision in the next couple of weeks, months, so yes. we, uh, days, Child hours, childcare. I, I don't care. know if there's a care.com. There's, you know, should we put it like an ad on Craigslist? Yeah. Presidential <laughs> candidates seeking babysitter That's for right. you know eight, eighteen, 18 months, eighteen maybe months, ten more years, maybe yeah. ten more. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> so. Thank you so much for being Great. here. Thanks, okay. Joe. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Eric Swalwell for coming in here in between MSNBC appearances. I'd like to thank Libby Coleman for producing today's podcast. And remember, whether you cling to your lifeboat of a congressional seat or you burn the boats, it's all political. It's all political as part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.